This is the Short-Term Parking Podcast, and I am Jack Prebeck. I do not trust consensus. I never have. I don't care for bandwagon thinking. If something is either too popular or too unpopular, it creeps me out a little bit. And that can go for a TV show, music, a movie, political thought, buzzwords, religion, anything cultural. I'm a 56-year-old white male. I've seen a lot, experienced a lot. Like Roy Buchanan said, I've walked into places I never should have been. I grew up mostly in the Midwest in the 70s, the 1970s. I remember when I was 11 years old and our family lived in a little town called Herman, Missouri, a quaint little picturesque German town on the Missouri River. We had moved there that summer. I remember going down to the municipal swimming pool and there were two black children, young probably eight or nine years old, younger than I, that were standing outside of the pool, outside of a chain-link fence with their hands up on the fence and looking in. And my mom had taken us three children to the pool and she asked the uh, man who was in charge there. I don't know what you'd call him, the manager of the pool. Something like that. Anyway, he was the one that oversaw the lifeguards and checked your pool pass when you came in or took money from you. If you wanted to just come in for the day, you didn't have a pass. And by the way, he was also the gym teacher at the uh, junior high. And I bring that up just to point out that he was embedded in the community. Anyway, my mom asked this guy uh, about these two children that were standing outside. And she was asking whether they didn't have the money to come in. I don't know, perhaps she was going to... uh, pay their fare. And the guy just flat out said, uh, we don't let them in here. They're not allowed. And my mom was appalled. This was, uh, as I said, uh, in the seventies, the mid seventies. So after the civil rights bill and segregation, but as we found out later, uh, the pillars of the community, the businessmen, the school board, realtors had formed a, a sort of a cartel in that they operated together to keep black people out of the community. The uh, realtors would not sell black people property. I remember the superintendent of schools 
in a conversation with my dad telling him that the way that they got around hiring black people is they would, along with their application, ask for a picture, a photograph. And so they knew who not to hire. And this was no secret. These things were not secret. They were not openly bragged about. But on the other hand, they weren't afraid of talking about these things. And the idea seemed to be that they had come up with uh, clever solutions to just avoid the situation of having to deal with race. And clearly this is what would now be called institutional racism on a local level, including local governmental level. And you can add to that, that is an example of white privilege as, as a young kid, a young child of 11, I was able to go swim in the pool and the black children were not. And I don't even know uh, actually who the two kids were. I know that in the uh, school system there were two other black students, a brother and a sister, and uh, their family lived outside the city limits. But apparently they were close enough to uh, be part of our school district. And so in those formative years I wasn't exposed to diversity. There just weren't a lot of black people around. But I listened to a lot of black music. I was uh, intrigued. I remember when I was uh, younger, before that incident I described happened, maybe eight years old, and I saw, I was up late one night and I saw B.B. King on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And there was something about his performance. He exuded such a joy that I just uh, wanted to have something like that in my life. I remember seeing B.B. King play the guitar. And later on, he sort of became my first guitar hero. And that led to uh, listening to a lot of jazz and other blues artists. And I remember having almost a complete catalog of Parliament Funkadelic albums when I was still a teenager, still living at home. And all of that stuff was radically different from the music that was in the air. The stuff on the radio was either what they now call classic rock. Back then it was just rock or hard rock. And a lot of country music was all around. And maybe that's an example of what I started out with that uh, I don't like consensus thinking. So maybe I was seeking, seeking that stuff out as opposed to George Jones or Styx or Aerosmith because that's what everybody else 
was so into everybody else around me was so into that stuff they wore the shirts and would quote the lyrics and I suppose I fancied myself as a bit of an outsider I wasn't exclusively listening to Lightning Hopkins and Miles Davis and John Lee Hooker and Muddy Waters and Charlie Parker and John Coltrane and Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Jimi Hendrix. I was also listening to a lot of rock artists that were influenced by black music like Eric Clapton and the Cream and the Allman Brothers and all the southern rock bands and all the neo-blues guys like Johnny Winter and Michael Bloomfield but at the same time I was very interested in things like the Mahavishnu Orchestra and Frank Zappa and going back to even classical music like Mozart, Bach, Debussy, Stravinsky and somehow it all tied together in my mind I could see the connection I could hear a connection between Stravinsky and Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and it wasn't long after that formative period that I busted out of that area and found myself opened up to a wider variety of people and cultures. And not long after that as well, I found myself on the road playing music six, seven nights a week, traveling, moving around, seeing many different places, working with various rock bands, country bands, and a lot of the time in the more seedy nightclubs, roadhouses, honky-tonks, dive bars, and the like, I saw a ton of crazy, crazy stuff. And I witnessed from time to time some blatant racism and not just against black people, but also Native Americans and Latinos and Asians. And I've seen the signs in uh, Mississippi and Louisiana that said, don't let the sun set on you around here, what they used to call sunset towns. I played all over the deep south with a band from Minneapolis that had a black lead singer and most everywhere we'd go you'd hear the n-word murmured in the crowd from time to time and I actually saw this same gentleman castigated and insulted by other black people who took offense at him because he was uh, in a band with white guys I remember a situation one night in Jackson, Mississippi, getting into a physical altercation in the parking lot of a Taco Bell. 
because there were a group of three or four young black men that kept calling him Cowboy because he was hanging out in our band, which played a lot of country music. Actually fighting our way out of a Taco Bell parking lot. It's a mean old world, as St. Louis Jimmy said. In a lot of ways, it's a mean old world. But along the way as well, I witnessed many, many times where people got along and nice things happened, where there was harmony and race truly wasn't an issue with interpersonal relationships, but those things tend to not stick in your mind like the bad things do. A lot of times the negatives stay in the memory in great detail. And so this morning I was having a cup of coffee and I was watching CNN and there was a, a guy on there talking about difficult conversations about race and white privilege. And one thing he brought up was if you were walking down the street and would and saw a man, would you be more intimidated and or scared if you saw a black man than you would be if it was a white man? And I immediately thought, well, it would have to be more nuanced than that. There would be other environmental conditions that would temper my level of being intimidated or scared. And then I thought back to an incident in the early 2000s. At this point in my life, I was working, uh, doing some stuff in the music publishing business. And I was on my way to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. to do some copyright research. I was actually working for a guy named Bill Dees, who was the co-writer with Roy Orbison of the song, Oh Pretty Woman. And Bill was in a situation where he had a large number of songs, a couple hundred songs, and the status of who owned the rights to the songs was a little bit up in the air. And it came to my intention that a great number of these songs may not have been copyrighted. So at that time, you could uh, contact the Library of Com Congress and pay them a hourly fee that would have uh, amounted to thousands, possibly tens of thousands of dollars for them to do the copyright research to see if these particular songs had been copyrighted. And it turned out that it was cheaper for me to uh, just go to the Library of Congress and look up the information on the little three by five cards in their files, their physical files. And in fact, it was so much cheaper to do this, to make this trip that I was able to uh, travel with my then wife, my former wife. 
And so the two of us got on a plane in Springfield, Missouri, and headed out to Washington, D.C., and we had a layover in St. Louis, Lambert Field. And so we were there for, I don't know, an hour or two, and we headed to one of the airport bars. I was carrying a briefcase that had a pretty good sum of cash in it, something like that. And we went to this bar and sat down, ordered a drink. And over at the other end of the bar, there was a young guy, black guy, and he was wearing jogging shorts and a sleeveless t-shirt. And he had what looked like another t-shirt wrapped around his head turban style and he was in a loud emotional conversation with a young lady who appeared to maybe be pregnant and she looked real young younger than he and there was a a bartender lone bartender the only one working in there was a a black lady and she was trying to uh, break up this altercation and remove him from the bar. She was telling him to leave, and he didn't want to leave. The young lady he was arguing with was in tears, and the bartender was threatening to call security, the airport security. And as all this was going on, I had this briefcase, and... I had a Budweiser on the bar, and as had happened in my life many times before, I visualized if I need to, I can bust this bottle and use it as a impromptu knife. And I was thinking like that, and I had this briefcase, and I was holding onto it with my left hand, and I put it in between my legs, in essence trying to protect it if anybody would come at that briefcase they would have to uh, tangle with me and my Budweiser knife basically I had a plan in case things went down well in a short period the young lady who was in altercation with the guy she went running out of the airport bar And the bartender and the guy had a few words, and not long after that, he left. And the bartender came over, and I just said, well, what was that all about? And she said, well, that's Lil Wayne. He comes in here a lot. He's been in here several times and caused problems, and I'm just sick sick of dealing with him. And I said, well, who is he? And she said, Lil Wayne, he's a famous rapper. And at the time, I had never heard of him. But as it turns out, he had already sold millions of records and made millions of dollars by then. And so basically, I was preparing to protect my piddly little $1,200 or so from a multimillionaire pop star. And we all laughed at that. (laughs) Ha ha. 
But I've thought about that incident many times, even before white privilege became a buzzword. And I've uh, looked at myself and wondered, would I have uh, been prepared to protect that briefcase in the same manner if it would have been a white man who was arguing loudly with a young pregnant girl and maybe even a white woman behind the bar. And uh, I don't have the exact answer. I'm sure I would have felt compelled to protect myself and whoever I would have been with and the money I was entrusted with. And certainly, I've been in situations where I had to defend myself in the honky-tonks and dive bars of America from time to time. Yes, it's true. I've been in a few bar fights. But that was when I was a younger man and it was the custom at the time. But I guess the point of all this that is bubbling and babbling through my mind this morning is that, as always, there's a lot more nuance to these discussions. There should be more nuance. And you can't separate individuals and the actions of individuals from the overall discussion. I have no doubt that black people have been unfairly treated disproportionately by police. But I too have been beat up by the cops and I'm an ally. I'm not impressed or swayed by we need to have a difficult conversation. You must first admit you have a problem quasi 12-step jargon. I'm impressed by individual actions, individual thoughts. I'm an advocate of the non-aggression principle and I'm impressed by people who live their life by that principle. And I believe that is the great foundation, the great key. These are serious times and we should not tolerate oppression by the police and coercion at the hands of the police state regardless. And I'm going to leave that at that. This is episode nine of the short-term parking podcast. And there have been a few people listening out there. And those of you who are tuning in, I greatly appreciate it. And also those of you who have listened in before will know that mostly what I've talked about has been things involving the creative process, art, and that this uh, episode may be 
may appear to be a deviation. But I think social issues, culture, art, and creative process are all linked. A lot of times I've started out these podcasts with a quote. I'm going to end this one with uh, a little quote from Ray Bradbury. While our art cannot, as we wish it could, save us from wars, privation, envy, greed, old age, or death, it can revitalize us amidst it all. It's something good to think about, especially in this time when most all entertainment seems to be just folly. Maybe there's something a little deeper there that you can seek out. Perhaps there's something on a different level, something less superficial that you can seek out that will help to ease your mind or maybe even takes you away for a brief period. As always, I'm going to end with a little bit of music here. I've got a improvisation piece I did the other day. I used the Akai Force Music Production Studio to make some various percussion noises. And on top of that, I played a bass guitar, walking bass line, and some chords, and improvised some lead guitar on top of that. I was trying a little experiment here to see if I could use the machine and uh, to make percussive noises and try and make them swing, as they say. So once again, thank you for listening. And you know, it's what we do from here on out that matters. Thank <laughs> you.